What is the connection between Canadian policy and the exodus of thousands from Honduras? What are some of the changes brought about in Honduran society as a result of the 2009 overthrow of President Manuel Zelayas? What hazards are the Central Americans seeking asylum facing as they make their way toward the U.S.-Mexican border? What difference will a newly elected leftist leader make to the overall Central American migrant crisis as he assumes the presidency of Mexico in December? On this week's Global Research News Hour, on a week following the dramatic events at the U.S.-Mexico border in Tijuana, we take a closer look at the factors influencing and impacting the plight of thousands of Central Americans fleeing difficult circumstances in their home countries. We first hear from Canadian academic and book author Tyler Shipley about the role of Canada in generating and exacerbating the conditions leading to the migrations out of Honduras. Then we hear from an on-the-ground reporter, Jose Luis Granados Ceja, about some of the people on the caravan and about the support, the opposition, and the dangers they've been facing on their 4,000-kilometer journey. On this week's program, The Migrant Caravan, Canadian and U.S. business interests place profits over people in Central America. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 30th, 2018. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the traditional territory of Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Predictably, the crisis that began on Sunday between Russia and Ukraine in the Kerch Strait is quickly worsening as Russia has announced plans to deploy more of its advanced S-400 surface-to-air missile systems to Crimea. Adding to tensions, Reuters has further reported that a Russian warship has been dispatched to the Sea of Azov, waters used by both countries and near where the Russian Navy seized Ukrainian vessels and crew for what Moscow condemned as maneuvering dangerously and illegal entry into Russian territory. The warship was seen departing a Crimean port by a Reuters correspondent on Wednesday and was described as the Russian Navy minesweeper ship, the Vice Admiral Zakharin, going in the direction of the Sea of Azov. This comes a day after Ukraine's president, Petro Poroshenko, issued provocative statements during a televised interview on Tuesday that his country is, quote, under threat of full-scale war with Russia, unquote, while seeking to justify martial law. The Ukrainian president added that, quote, the number of units that have been deployed along our border, what's more, along its full length, has grown dramatically, unquote. That comes from the article, Russia deploys S-400 missiles to Crimea in military showdown with Ukraine. Post November 29th, originally peering at zero hedge. British military personnel have been present in Ukraine since 2015, involved in training Ukraine military personnel. On November 21st, 2018, 
A few days prior to the Kirsch Strait incident, the British Ministry of Defense confirmed that a new contingent of UK special forces were slated to be sent to Ukraine. According to Deputy Commander Edward Basarin, a representative of the Ministry of Defense of the DNR, quote, We've repeatedly said that an act of terror on a chemical enterprise is being prepared, unquote. The UK forces are in Ukraine advising Ukrainian forces. That comes from the article posted under the headline video, British Special Forces in Ukraine, Alleged Chemical Weapons and Black Ops Against Donbass? Posted November 28th, originally published at Vesti News. Rostislav Ishenko, arguably the sharpest observer of Russia-Ukraine relations, in a piece written before the Kirsch incident, said, quote, Ukraine itself recognized the right of Russia to introduce restrictions on the passage of ships and vessels through the Kersh Strait, having obeyed these rules in the summer, unquote. Yet, after the U.S. deep state's massive investment, even before the protests on the Maidan in Kiev in 2014 that wrested Ukraine away from Russian influence, a possible entente cordiale between the Trump administration and the Kremlin with Russia in control of Crimea and a pro-Russian Donbass, could only be seen as a red line for the Americans. Thus, a Kirsch Strait incident, designed as a cheap provocation bearing all the hallmarks of a U.S. think tank ploy, is automatically interpreted as Russian aggression, regardless of the facts. Indeed, any such tactics are good when it comes to derailing the Trump-Putin meeting at the G20 in Buenos Aires this coming weekend. That comes from the article, Drama in the Kersh Strait, Teasing the Russian Bear, by Pepe Escobar, posted November 28th, originally published at Asia Times. According to The Guardian, Russia's foreign ministry has accused Ukraine of coordinating with the U.S. and the EU in a planned provocation aimed at securing further sanctions against Moscow as tensions mount after a dangerous clash between the two countries. From The Guardian, 26th of November 2018. Will the Kirsch Straits incident lead to a process of military escalation? In recent developments from November 26th, Russia has reopened the Kirsch Strait to maritime navigation. To understand these unfolding events, it is important to analyze the strategic role of the Kirsch Strait. That comes from the article, Strategic Waterways and the Kirsch Strait Incident Towards Military Escalation by Professor Michel Chosodovsky. Posted November 26th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Public attention has been riveted to the migrant caravan which started in northern Honduras and has made its way to the U.S.-Mexico border, where it's encountering hostility from U.S. border agents. While the public debate in Canada and the U.S. is mostly centered around the appropriate humanitarian response to people in desperate circumstances, there appears to be little dialogue about the role these countries played in generating the catastrophe the migrants are fleeing from. For more insights into this aspect, the Global Research News Hour sought out a past guest who has researched the situation and written a book on Canada's role in Honduras. We have with us on the line from Toronto, Tyler Shipley. 
He's Professor of Culture, Society, and Commerce at the Humber Institute of Technology and Advanced Learning and an Associate Fellow with the Center for Research on Latin America and the Caribbean. He's also author of the 2017 book, Ottawa and Empire, Canada and the Military Coup in Honduras. Tyler Shipley, welcome. Thank you. Thanks very much, Michael. Could you remind our listeners of the specific role played by Canada in enabling the success and the support of the military coup of 2009? Yeah, so, I mean, um, I guess the backstory on, on the coup in Honduras is that um, in, the two, in the 2000s, the first part of the, the 2000s, um, people in Honduras were pushing back against the government um, that was becoming increasingly responsive to them. That is to say, people wanted, uh, you know, uh, protection for, for reasonable wages at work, um, protection of indigenous territory, consultations before mines would be put uh, into, you know, uh, affecting a community, um, protection of land for, for peasants, for families that, that are farming families, a whole variety of things, protection for women uh, in, a, in a very patriarchal society. Um, a range of things that people were pushing for. And uh, especially in the, the second half of the 2000s, uh, the government of Honduras was listening. Uh, it sort of had to because there was this real mobilization of, of civil society, of people you know, marching in the streets and occupying offices and sending letters and petitions, all that sort of thing. Um, that government was overthrown uh, in 2009. Um, the president was Manuel Celaya, he was not a particularly radical figure in particular, not him personally, but he was responsive to this social movement that had been calling for change. Um, and so when his government was overthrown, most of the international community immediately said, this is, you know, ridiculous, this is criminal, you know, this is a democratically elected president with six months left in his term, you have to bring him back, you can't just kidnap him in his pajamas and take him out of the country and, you know, pretend that everything is normal. Um, Canada made the very interesting choice not to criticize what was happening. Canada waited and waited and, you know, it eventually offered a sort of a tepid statement, you know, when you're calling on all parties to show restraint. Uh, and what became clear over the next six months was that Canada was going to work very hard to support the military that overthrew this government. Um, I mean, that came as a shock to many people, it was even sort of shocking to me didn't really understand it, um, and so I spent a lot of the next decade uh, digging into Canada's role in Honduras, Canada's uh, intervention and, and relationship in Honduras, and um, yeah, I'm happy to go into more detail if you like, but the short version of the story is that there are many Canadian companies uh, that have a lot of money invested in Honduras, and it was precisely those companies that stood to lose if people uh, got the protections they wanted. You know, if workers uh, are protected and allowed to form trade unions, uh, that means that they'll, they'll get higher wages, which in my opinion they deserve. Um, but of course, from the standpoint of Canadian capital, companies like Gildan, uh, this would be a bad thing. This would cut into their profits. Uh, you know, if indigenous people are, are empowered to say, no, we don't want a mine built on our territory, well, this could be bad news for Canadian mining companies who want to build mines wherever there happens to be the resources they want. Um, so Canada has supported uh, a what has emerged as a right-wing dictatorship uh, in Honduras, which, which took over in 2009 in that coup 
uh, and which remains in power to this day. Um, so, I mean, I can go into more detail about uh, any particular well, aspects or incident, I, but Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, in terms of the deteriorating uh, social conditions of the people, I mean, is it possible to kind of give us a bit of a sketch of, uh, you know, how, you know, we went from that coup to the, uh, the, the conditions we're seeing now? I mean, the, the social movements that you mentioned earlier uh, were clearly disrupted, but uh, how did we get from there to the conditions that are seeing thousands flee Honduras? Yeah, I mean it's really it's a really heartbreaking story in a way. Um, Honduras has, has been a poor country for a long time, and that's probably no surprise uh, to your listeners that that's connected to the long history of imperialism and, and capitalism. But um, in those early 2000s, in the years well that social movement was building, um, people were starting to make some gains, and it seemed as though it was it was conceivable. Um, that maybe, you know, a sort of a basic lower middle class life might be possible for, you know, a, a wider stretch of society. Um, that has totally been undermined since 2009. Um, so, you know, uh, a whole range of things that, you know, you could use as sort of benchmarks for this, but it's a focus on maybe the places where can, uh, Canada's most active. Um, the largest private sector employer in the country uh, is a Canadian company. It's Gildan. Uh, Gildan uh, is the t-shirt, sock, sweatshirt, you know, clothing manufacturing company. Uh, this is an incredibly profitable company. They're based out of Montreal. Uh, and I looked just before you, you uh, called, I looked up just to see, well, okay, what were their profits for the last, uh, you know, for, for last year? And, and they're booming. I haven't dug up the actual number, but, I mean, they, they are up 11.2% in the last quarter of 2017, and they were already very high. So this is a very, very profitable company. Um, and that wealth comes from exploiting labor. That's precisely why Gildan is so profitable. Gildan has moved all of its manufacturing from countries like Canada to countries like Honduras and Haiti, where people are very poor. Uh, people will accept work at whatever wage is offered because they're so desperate. Um, and where there is, in Honduras, a government that will stop people, will actively block people from forming unions. Um, in one Gildan factory, there was an attempt to form a union, uh, and people were threatened uh, with violence. Uh, in another, where they successfully did form a union, the company shut down the factory, immediately closed it, and built a new factory somewhere else. Um, so we're talking about, you know, that's one company, but it's a reflection of the situation in Honduras where people are really struggling. There's a, a huge amount of poverty, and it's getting worse. Um, the, another manifestation of this that I think is worth bringing up is that, uh, as always, poverty is closely related to crime. And crime in Honduras has become really bad. It has become a disaster. Um, this has happened for a number of reasons. Um, but one of them is that when you have a government in place that is itself deeply corrupt, uh, that is itself deeply connected with organized crime, and that is carrying out politically motivated violence with impunity, which it is. And what I mean is assassinating opponents, detaining people, torturing them, throwing them in prison. Um, you know, a friend of mine has been in prison for over a year now. Um, when you have a government that's doing that, uh, it becomes very easy for, for other elements of crime to spiral out of control. 
and so in Honduras, there is a, a, a crisis, I think, uh, with respect to violence, gang violence, narco-trafficking violence, state violence. Uh, it's become very difficult for people in Honduras to simply carve out, you know, a basic life for themselves, to get a job, to keep a job, for that job to pay them enough, uh, and for them to be safe from both politically motivated state-level crime and also, you know, more disorganized or street-level crime, which both have become endemic uh, in the society. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, well, I, I hope yeah. I sort of just gestured fo- towards it. <laughs> just following from what you're mentioning there, I, I noticed that uh, also the uh, this the, the the level of corruption and uh, you know state uh, you know uh, yeah state corruption and and malfeasance it's made become quite difficult to be a journalist or an activist in Honduras and yeah. there uh, there's certainly uh, I think that uh, you've point, certainly pointed out in the book how uh, dissenting opinion can be costly not just for, for those journalists or activists, but for family members. So if, if you could maybe provide a, a couple of uh, illustrative examples of, of how that uh, dissent is being contained. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's a real sort of chilling effect uh, in, in the way in which journalists and, and, and people who are critical of the, the government are treated. Um, I mentioned one of my friends is in prison. Um, the the government that is in power right now, uh, which really has been since 2009, it's essentially the same people, um, they've now stolen three elections. They've held three elections, all of which were fraudulent, uh, in some cases absurdly so. Uh, and after the last fraudulent election, which was held about a year ago, uh, almost exactly a year ago, actually, um, uh, my good friend, a uh, person who uh, has been part of the social movement in Honduras for many years, uh, Edwin Espinel, uh, was part of a series of demonstrations protesting against the fraudulent election. I mean, this is an election that was fraudulent by most inter- the standards of most international organizations. It wasn't a wasn't a claim that was thrown around loosely by Edwin and others in Honduras. It was very obvious. It was a, it was an obvious case, almost a farcical case of electoral fraud. Well, Edwin was uh, was arrested, detained, taken to a military prison. Amnesty International was refused to even uh, have access to him or to be party to the charges that were brought against him. Um, it was all sort of a trumped-up uh, kind of thing, and, and Edwin is still in prison to this day. And there's no timeline for his release. Um, and that's one example, but there are many, and many of them are, are far worse, far more gruesome Um so, you know, I'll warn your listeners that the next one I'm going to give is, is a bit sort of harrowing. But um, journalists, anyone who is a journalist and who is critical of the government um, is always under threat of violence. Uh, and the threats are very real because sometimes the violence is carried out. Uh, and one particular case that I found especially uh, sort of upsetting, uh, a journalist uh, who was working with Radio Globo, a critical radio station, um, uh, returned home after a day of work to find his 17-year-old daughter uh, had been hanged, um, killed by hanging. Um, that was how he found her. She was 17 years old. I mean, she—I you know, don't—I don't know what her particular politics were, but it was clear that this was uh, a way of trying to shut down and shut up uh, the journalist itself. 
Um, this is one example, but there are many like it. And one other one I will give you um, isn't specific to a journalist, but uh, in the neighborhood where Edwin uh, lives, lived until he was taken to jail, um, poor neighborhood in capital city, Tegucigalpa, and the state uh, took over a soccer field and tried to turn it into a private soccer field. It was a publicly owned field. It was very, you know, uh, cheap. It was it was not very well kept, but it was a field where the kids could play in a poor neighborhood. Um, the state took it over and they wanted to privatize it, turn it into a you know a private fancy facility where you know, rich kids could come in and and play there. Well, the kids in the neighborhood didn't like this, and so they organized against it. They protested. They filled offices. They made all kinds of signs and things to try to protect their soccer field. One of the organizers of the protest, not the, not one of the kids, but one of the adult organizers, one of the people involved. Um, was not only killed, um, but parts of his body were left in different parts of the neighborhood so that they would all be, these different parts of his body would be found. This is violence that is designed to terrorize people. It's designed to stop people from protesting, from writing critically, from speaking critically, from doing anything but shutting up and you know, doing what you're told. It's remarkable uh, in the in the current context we hear about Jamal Khashoggi and the, the gruesome uh, his gruesome murder, and there's so much international outrage over it. And yet, how many people, especially with this migrant caravan uh, in the news, have heard about the you know this uh, this this chill on journalism? Yeah, it's really uh, there isn't much about it, and of course that's where it comes back to the question of. Canada's role in all this. Now, why aren't we hearing about Honduras? Why isn't Honduras in the news? I wanted to bring up one more point. I mean, you you did mention the uh, the, the mining sector and the sweatshop uh, uh, the sweatshop labor, Gildan. But there's another aspect that uh, we we'd actually get to in our last interview, and that having to do with the tourist trade. Could you mm. bring that forward? Canada's role there, particularly the example of Life Vision properties. Yeah. Yeah. So as you say, Canada is heavily invested in mining, obviously the garment industry, but one of the less noted examples is um, the amount of Canadian capital that is invested in Honduras' north coast uh, for both retirement complexes, cruise ships, uh, cruise ports, and, and other uh, sort of tourist industry, you know, uh, resort hotels, things like that. Um, they've bought up a huge chunk of the territory along the north coast. Now, this is, this is land, this is territory, um, that is that belongs to the Garifuna people. They are an Afro-Indigenous uh, civilization. They have lived there for uh, hundreds of years. Uh, their culture is recognized by United Nations, by UNESCO, uh, as as a, as a unique uh, civilization. Uh, they are uh, descendants from African slaves who escaped uh, and then. Uh, sort of met with and lived amongst indigenous people. So they have a very unique culture, and they live along the north coast, and they live off the land, uh, they live communally, and um, that life that they have lived for hundreds of years is actively being disrupted by the construction of, as I say, resort hotels, retirement complexes, and so on. One of the companies involved is a company called Life Vision Properties. That's the one you mentioned, and it's owned uh, by... A man who, for those of you listening who uh, remember the 1990s, uh, there was a porn, pornography chain uh, that was sort of, that that existed in the suburbs of Canada called Adults Only Video. 
And Randy Jorgensen was the owner of Adults Only Video. He is also the owner of Life Vision Properties. Uh, this, this, uh, so he, he's basically a, a, a capitalist baron in the north coast of Honduras. And he's a, he's a pretty, uh, unsavory sort of guy. Uh, interviews with him, you know, you'll see that he has disdain for indigenous people. Uh, you know, he harbors all kinds of racism against indigenous people in Honduras and in Canada. Um, he has used uh, basically bribery and theft in order to get the land, and I've documented in a few different places um, the, the ways in which he's actually, you know, gained physical control of the land. It's usually been uh, very underhanded and, and with the support of the Honduran military. Um, he's been accused of making child pornography with Honduran women at the resort. I mean, this is a guy who's uh, got a pretty bad... Uh, reputation, uh, and yet there he is, one of the you know one of these wealthy Canadians uh, who you know is profiting from the crisis in Honduras. And to the extent that people go and work in his resorts, they they go there because they have no alternative. And no, the pay is not very good. And yes, they are treated uh, you know with disrespect. But what choice do they have? That's what poverty does to people. Uh, and of course that. You know, is yet another of the, the reasons people are fleeing. People are trying to get out of that country because all of the reasonable options for making a basically decent living and, and living a reasonable life, those options are being closed off. They're being eliminated and replaced by, you know, bad jobs, if there are any jobs at all. Um, and, um, you know, and, and I guess one last thing to note on that point about the North Coast is, of course, that uh, around those resorts, uh, has, there is a booming sex tourist industry. Uh, tons of Honduran women are being drawn into the sex trade uh, because part of what you know, Jorgensen, part of the way that Jorgensen sells his resorts is this image of of sex and indeed cheap uh, sex. Um, it's, it's a really, as I say, very unsavory sort of thing. And most Canadians would probably be quite disgusted, actually, uh, to sort of know about what goes on around those resorts. But we don't we don't hear much about that, um, which speaks to obviously um, Canada's relationship, the Canadian government's relationship with the Honduran government. If you were in a position to direct the Canadian government's response to the Central American uh, migrant caravan, what steps would you recommend? Well, I mean, you know, sometimes these problems are so big that it's it's hard to it's hard to conceive of. Of simple answers to questions like that, but for for one thing, um, you know these people in, in the migrant caravan these are refugees. Uh, that's how they should be understood. That's how their their status should be understood. They are refugees. They are fleeing a crisis. They're fleeing catastrophe. Um, one in which you know not only is it almost impossible for people to economically survive, it's increasingly difficult to just physically survive and, and not be subject to some kind of violence. So these are refugees, and, and first and foremost, they should be treated as such and therefore given uh, asylum and anything that the Canadian government could do, including uh, opening its doors to these refugees, uh, would obviously be something that, that I would recommend. Um, but I think maybe perhaps more important than that, um, I mean, the root of the problem is the crisis in Honduras, and Canada has played a central role in supporting the military government in Honduras. Uh, Canada has been integral. Canada helped to get that government 
reintegrated into the international community, helps to get that government back into the organization of American states, into the United Nations, and so on. Has, Canada has heaped legitimacy on a government that has stolen three elections. Um, if I were to make a recommendation, the recommendation would be that Canada would have to do a 180-degree turnaround in terms of its relationship to that government. Um, Canada would have to go back, uh, you know, revisit its position that began in 2009 and say that democracy has been interrupted in Honduras uh, and it needs to be put back. Uh, the current government uh, needs to be uh, told that, that, that they aren't a legal uh, government, that they have stolen an election uh, and that they have to step down immediately. Uh, this could so this could be this argument could be made for several reasons. I mean, there is the fact that the election was stolen. There is also the fact that the president Juan Orlando Hernandez is deeply, deeply connected to organized crime. His brother was just arrested only a few days ago uh, for connections uh, to the narco trafficking gang. These these are these are thugs. These are thugs that run the country. Um, well known in Honduras, of course, in the international community, people don't know, but. Within Honduras, everybody knows that these guys are, are caught up with organized crime and, and so on. So, I mean, those would be the recommendations, I think. And unfortunately, they're very large, they're, they're very vague. But the problem, that's, that's because Canada's position has been so woefully wrong on this. And so the only way to fix it would be, as I say, to do a 180-degree turn. It's been a pleasure having you back on the show, Tyler. Uh, thanks uh, for sharing your perspectives with our listeners. Thanks, Michael. I really appreciate it. We've been speaking with Toronto-based Tyler Shipley, academic and author of the 2017 book, Ottawa and Empire, Canada and the Military Coup in Honduras. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Jose Luis... Granados Ceja is an independent writer and photojournalist based in Mexico City. He previously worked as a staff writer for Telesur and has contributed to the Two Row Times, among other outlets. He has also worked in radio and as a host and producer, and currently works on a freelance basis. Jose escorted the caravan from Mexico, the Mexico-Guatemala border to the city of Tapachula in Chiapas and had a chance to speak with several of the participants of the migrant caravan. It's great to have you on the program, Jose. Thanks for making the time to speak with us. Very happy to be here. Could you talk, first of all, about the encounter at the Mexico-Guatemala border, at the uh, Ciudad-Hidalgo uh, port of entry, uh, the border crossing there? What were the challenges facing the caravan at that point? Yeah, so the group that I was able to meet with was actually amongst the first wave of migrants coming from Central America into Mexico in order to continue their journey north to where many intend to go, which is the United States. And, well, this is a difficult journey all along the way. Uh, it starts out in, you know, most people are coming from Honduras, but there are also people from El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Guatemala. And, you know, it's a journey that is actually mostly done on foot, Occasionally, people do give them rides or are able to secure some transportation. But for the most part, it's, it's on foot in very hot weather uh, with very little resources to speak of. And so you're, what you're seeing is an exodus of people who are fleeing a very difficult situation 
I'm going to mostly talk about Honduras because the vast majority of people uh, are, are coming from Honduras. It's a country that is experiencing a lot of political and economic turmoil. And in order to kind of put things into context, in 2009 there was a coup d'etat in Honduras which ousted a leftist reformer by the name of Manuel Zelaya. And since then there has been effectively been a dictatorship. There have been elections, but they've been rather dubious. Uh, the last one in particular was very questionable. And so there is a regime in charge in Honduras that is ruling for a very small elite uh, to the detriment of most people. And so that's why people are choosing to flee Honduras and endure this journey. In terms of the actual difficulties of the, the journey is that, well, apart from the difficulty of having to do but such a, such a long um, trip on foot, is also that during those days, there was uh, still not a lot of direction coming from the Mexican government. We're, we're still under the government of, of uh, President Enrique Peña Nieto from the, the pre-party. And it seemed like there was a lot of confused signals. Well, ultimately what ended up happening is that when they got to the border, they were met by a closed gate. And were then when they tried to cross the first gate from Guatemala and then reach the, the, the second gate, which is on the actual Mexican side of the border, they were met with repression, with tear gas. And so, uh, you know, once that settled down, they, the border was effectively closed to them. Most people decided to cross on very uh, makeshift rafts um, and where they would then, they gathered in Ciudad Hidalgo where um, they were received by civil society organizations. And, you know, I spoke with some people who were attending to the migrants there. You know, they talked about the exhaustion uh, that many were suffering, you know, just from the, from the heat. Uh, some people had, you know, received some, uh, you know, some contusions as a result of the repression, uh, and just kind of give you an idea. And so that was just the beginning, you know, and they still had all of Mexico left to, to cross, which again is very, a very difficult and a very dangerous journey. Mexico has a problem with security, and there are areas where the state is not very present, and in those areas it's often you hear, and we did hear, uh, of cases of migrants being forcibly disappeared by organized crime. And then all of that to get to Tijuana, which I think we can get to in a minute. Mm. Well, could you then, first of all, talk about um, some of the stories that you heard from uh, the migrants? Uh, they, uh, are there a couple of illustrative stories that, that you could share that, that will help them understand what these people are going through on their 4,000-kilometer journey? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of ones that I, I think really kind of paint a clear picture. One, I remember speaking to, to a young man when we were talking about this exodus, and he put it very plainly. He's like, we're not migrating. We're fleeing. You know, they're, they are running for their lives. Uh, another young man that I spoke to lifted up his shirt, and he showed me the very still visible scars on his body, that they were a result of a, uh, some thieves who were trying to take his bicycle and shot him ten times. He barely survived that episode. But it gives you an idea of the level of violence that, that crime uh, employs in Central America uh, that uses NL for to steal something that, you know, how much value can a bicycle really have? So it gives you an idea just how bad things are. And migrants told me that they feel very hopeless because, so on the one hand, they have organized crime groups asking, and uh, you know, through extortion, basically, to contribute uh, fees, basically. For protection, uh, and on the other side, they have police who are similarly, you know, squeezing them for uh, for bribes. And so, 
even if, let's say, someone's able to put together a business, they quickly find out that everything that they're making goes to either organized crime or, or, or to uh, corruption. And so it's very difficult for people to feel like there's, there's an exit. And one final anecdote that I wanted to share uh, that I think also helps people understand just the desperation is that so we have a change of government happening this Saturday, December 1st, and the president-elect, Andres Manuel López Obrador, said uh, that he was interested in offering work visas for people from Central America who are fleeing violence so that they could find asylum here inside of Mexico. And I asked a woman, the mother of three, uh, why she decided to join this caravan and not wait, because at, at that point it was only a couple of months before there was a change in, in government, perhaps a government that maybe would be more friendly towards the needs of migrants. And without a moment's hesitation, she said immediately, I can't wait because my babies will die of hunger. And so that's just how desperate people are feeling. And that, I think, helps understand just uh, the other part being that, that they feel like there isn't a political solution to their problem either. They, you know, last year there was elections, the one-year anniversary of those uh, contested elections just passed this week in Honduras. And people talked about how they took to the streets to protest, that they tried to do things the the right way of, uh, quote-unquote, you know, of agitating, of protesting, of, of even, you know, going out and voting and, and pursuing a change of government through the democratic institutions of their country. And that, too, was denied to them. So and all of that combined, I think, is also really why we're seeing the numbers of people fleeing Central America. And, of course, one aspect is the fact that there is safety in numbers, a relative safety in numbers. These people are facing major threats. You just hinted at uh, the disappearances and the uh, uh, organized crime and the cartels and so on. Could you elaborate a little more on uh, some of those threats that uh, you're familiar with? Yeah, most of the people that I spoke to as well actually said that they had every intention of, of leaving their country and heading towards the United States. It was when they heard about this caravan that they decided to, to join and leave in that moment. And that's precisely it, because there is safety in numbers. And it's also a more uh, feasible way of actually doing it. So the, when you travel alone, generally you do it through the help of what we call coyotes. And for lack of a precise translation, it's basically human smugglers. And they charge upwards of 7000 U.S. dollars. That is an amount of money that most people from Central America will never be able to actually save up. It's, it's an absurd amount of money. Uh, I mean, it's a lot of money to people who earn dollars. So it gives them, you know, makes it very difficult for them to be able to, to make it. To, and without the help of coyotes, well, you, you run the risk of, you know, of taking the wrong route, of being exposed to organized crime groups, of, you know, perhaps, you know, trying to cross the desert from, from Mexico into the United States, which is also a very dangerous thing. So there is, there's strength in numbers. When you move together, and it also sends a political message. You know, it's easy to ignore groups of, you know, a, a couple dozen or, you know, a handful of people. But when thousands of people are moving together, well, then uh, the state institutions inside of Mexico, civil society organizations in the world, I guess, ends up paying more attention to their situation. I think that's also important because, you know, it means the mobilization of, of, of resources and attention. Well, and But unfortunately, in some cases, a negative attention as we've seen as well in the United States. Could you speak to the, um, you? You also mentioned the extreme heat that that people had to cope with. What kinds of health emergencies is the ca caravan confronting, and and how are they are are people um, coping with these uh, health emergencies? Yeah, I mean it's 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 
hard to imagine how difficult, it's hard for me to describe just how difficult it is. I've merely accompanied them from the border to the city of Tabachula. I'm walking, it's about four hours. But by the second hour, you know, exhaustion was really setting me and I was pouring water on my head just to kind of save off uh, heat stroke. And, you know, most people, because they're, they're people of modest means, are traveling with the clothes on their back and the shoes that they happen to have at that moment, you know, and some people were walking in sandals or in plastic shoes. And so you would see people, you know, move off to the side of the road and try to attend to the blisters on their feet, you know, or, and also I think one of the things that really um, was emotional to see was at the very beginning of the walk. So they start early because to try to take advantage of the, of the cooler air in the morning is that the children are quite happy and they're playing and they're running around with other kids. But by, you know, by even the first hour, definitely by the second and then onwards, you can tell that they are becoming very exhausted, that, uh, that it's really taking a toll on them. And, you know, there's been some misconception saying that it's mostly young men. Uh, it's, there are a lot of families who are traveling with very young children. There's even been babies that have been born along the journey. So, uh, and there isn't that much, re- that much services available for them. You know, the groups, groups like the Red Cross, you know, that I witnessed being on site are there and they hand out water and they provide, you know, kind of first aid. Uh, but for the more complicated situations and health situations that arise, there isn't that much support for them. Fortunately, when they arrive to Mexico City, Mexico City is obviously, you know, wealthier and has more resources at its disposal. They set up a kind of like a tent city inside of an old sports complex. And there they were able to receive uh, medical attention. Doctors were able to, to be on hand and, and, and try to address some of the, the, the issues that had been developing along the way. Hmm. Um, just uh, I, I noticed that there was um, in Mexico City, uh, yeah, you mentioned the, the people who had uh, they managed to find some safe haven in Mexico City. I wonder if briefly you might be familiar with, uh, it was reported earlier this month, about 100 of the migrants had been kidnapped in Puebla State uh, on the way to Veracruz. Um, could you provide our listeners with some details about that, how that situation arise, arose and, and how it became resolved? Well, uh, so when they got to the state of Veracruz, they actually were in negotiations with the local state uh, government there in order to get some transportation on buses from the state of Veracruz to Mexico City. Ultimately, that kind of support didn't come through, and people wanted to continue on their journey, and so they started walking. And often when they're walking, there are good Samaritans who stop and offer to give them a ride. But it seems like in this instance what happened is that uh, somebody affiliated with an organized crime group offered them transportation but was actually uh, interested in, in forcibly disappearing them. It's a phenomenon that's actually, unfortunately, all too common for people who are traveling from from Central America to or through Mexico, where they're, they're, they're scooped up, uh, they're used as effectively slave labor uh, in order to, for the, for the means and for the ends of the, of the organized crime groups, it's been difficult to ascertain exactly what's happened with this group in particular uh, because, you know, they, they, did, they didn't have cell phones. If they did, they were likely seized by those that, that kidnapped them. And it's been difficult to also even know, you know, the names of the people who are missing, right, because this is all in many ways an improvised affair. And so there isn't, like, a list of people uh, who are traveling as part of the caravan. It's difficult to know so who might have been disappeared. Their family members are back in Central America. It's difficult for them to try to make a petition to the state to try to figure out what happened to their relatives. And so it's, it's, it's 
a consequence of the lack of resources, unfortunately, although there has been uh, tremendous help that's been given to them by Mexicans in civil society. Uh, I think in many ways the, the lack of transportation that had been promised to them led to this situation, and that's why you've seen so many of the migrant groups advocating for more assistance from the Mexican federal government for their journey, just for the questions like that, like safety, you know, maybe having some police accompany them as much as possible. Okay, so you just mentioned that there was uh, there has been support from the Mexican population. Unfortunately, some of it is... Uh, you know, sort of an exploitive kind of help. What can you tell us about the overall balance of uh, both support and opposition towards the uh, the migrants? Yeah, I, I, it's difficult for me to to say with any kind of certainty exactly. You know, well, what percentage? I haven't seen any kind of uh, opinion surveys done on that. I will say that when we were walking from the border to Chapatula. It was really impressive to see that people would literally come rushing, running out of their homes in order to offer people, you know, the food that they had in their pantry or the water, whatever water bottles they happened to have in their home. I remember even seeing some, some people who were apologizing for not having more to offer. Uh, and, you know, the, the state of Chiapas is, is also uh, the, uh, the poor state in, in the Mexican Federation. And so people who have very little are really interested in, in giving the little that they have in order to support because I think... As a country, we're a country that's also, you know, uh, a, a country that has a lot of people who leave for economic and uh, security reasons. So I think there is a lot of sympathy, for the most part, from Mexican society for those who are enduring this journey. They know that, you know, they likely have relatives who've also had to, you know, go to the other side, as we say here in Mexico. But I think it's also important to say that there is racism and xenophobia inside Mexico. We've seen displays of that. Uh, especially in Tijuana, recently with, uh, there was a couple of weeks ago, a protest against the, the migrant caravan. Uh, we saw the mayor of Tijuana make some very troubling statements against the presence of the migrants in that city. Uh, I think in some ways it's been exaggerated. I don't mean to play it down. I, I don't want to deny that racism and xenophobia exist inside Mexico and that needs to be confronted. But that rally, for example, at some point it seemed that there were more reporters than there were people demonstrating, right? Ultimately, it was uh, less than 500 people. But nonetheless, they are very vocal. And if you look on social media, there's also a lot of statements coming from people opposed to the caravan. So there, there is a mix. But, you know, for the most part, I think, you know, you see groups that uh, have been supporting the migrants. This isn't a new thing. Their migrants have been traveling through Mexico to reach the United States for decades. And so there's a lot of organizations that have uh, been working with migrants and, you know, providing shelter along the way, resources and support. We're speaking with Jose Luis Granados Ceja, an independent writer and photojournalist based in Mexico City. He's been following the migrant caravan. And, uh, Jose, I wanted you to uh, maybe give us, maybe... From your perspective, given what you know about the the physical and and mental health and trials of the migrant caravan, what's been going through your mind having heard about the the U.S. border agents uh, firing tear gas at the migrants uh, at the uh, uh, in Tijuana near the uh, San Isipro border crossing and and the other challenges like the the protests you just mentioned? 
Yeah, you know, seeking asylum, right? As I mentioned at the beginning, people people are fleeing. It's, it's they're not exaggerated. I think some people try to paint a picture that the migrants are economic migrants. They're just they're just seeking a better life. But no, they they really are fleeing. They they there are no jobs. There's very little hope of change in their countries of origin. And seeking asylum is something that is recognized by both domestic and international law throughout North America. We're talking Canada, the United States, and, and Mexico. And so they have a right to to seek safety. And it's really disappointing that people who are fleeing, people who are fleeing danger, are then met with repression, right? And instead, they, I would hope that people, uh, that governments, that officials would receive them with open arms, with some compassion, understanding that nobody decides to take this long journey uh, without feeling like they have probably no other choice. And so when you see scenes like we saw with the, with the tear gas, and then the sort of like worse still, I think, in some ways, is like the attempt to justify that. I, I don't think anything can justify that. And I also kind of going to the root of the problem, the, that desperation that you see people uh, crossing irregularly these, these border points is produced by the policies of, in this case, the United States government which actually is deliberately trying to slow the process. So in order to make that asylum claim, you actually have to set foot inside the United States and present yourself to an official and make the asylum, and then you have a hearing, and well, et cetera, et cetera. So what the U.S. actually has been doing as a means of dissuading people from coming is making that wait list extremely long. So even before the caravan got there, we were talking about thousands of people who are waiting on the Mexican side of the border in order to be able to set foot because they only let in about 40 to 60 people uh, in the morning and then another 40 to 60 in the evening. So we're talking a very small number of people being processed on a daily basis and everybody else having to wait. And so that, that desperation of being in, you know, makeshift camps without proper sanitation, without proper access to, to food and water, you know, it makes it so that people will feel very frustrated at, at their circumstance, you know. If, if the policies were different, that we were actually – you know, instead of sending troops and barbed wire, they sent officials who were able to process things, their claims faster, then you wouldn't see these kinds of clashes happening on the border. Now, this weekend, uh, Saturday, December 1st, a new leftist president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, as you mentioned earlier, is taking power in Mexico. He's promised humane treatment for the migrants, and his incoming interior minister, uh, Olga Sanchez Cordero, uh, he had fielded the idea of granting one million work visas to Central Americans. At the same time, there's a domestic unrest over the migrant issue long term, and it could also cause some difficulty in relations with the Trump administration. So in your view, to what extent will the incoming Obrador administration be a game changer for Central American migrants seeking asylum? I think if they follow through on the, that, that promise to offer visas and, and asylum or even residency for people from Central America inside Mexico, that could be pr- pretty significant, right? Not while most people want to reach the United States. I also spoke with many who, were, who said specifically that if they were offered asylum inside Mexico, that they would happily take it and, and live and work here. And so that would be pretty important. The challenge, I think, facing the incoming Lopez Obrador administration is that there's a lot of things that are just totally out of their control, uh, mainly the, the issue that I just touched on previously about the inability for people to actually get into the United States and make their asylum claim. And so 
there was a proposal that was floated, and then it seems like there's still negotiations happening. But basically, what the what the Trump administration is seeking is that people who are seeking asylum in the United States wait inside Mexico. And I, you know, there are issues with that proposal. Uh, I'm not an expert on on these kinds of topics, uh, so I'll leave that to somebody else. But what I will say is that the de facto situation now is that people are waiting on the Mexican side of the border in order to cross to make their asylum claim. And so that is the challenge of the Mexican government is what to do with these camps that are only growing. Uh, I don't think these kinds of caravans are going to stop anytime soon. And so we're going to have more and more people who are arriving to these makeshift camps, which are frankly just that are not adequate for people to stay months at a time. Like I mentioned, there was the wait list was already uh, long, and that was before the caravan even got there. So now we have over 6,000 new people who have arrived to the border region, the U.S.-Mexico border region, who are now waiting to cross to be able to make their asylum claim. That's not a sustainable situation. So uh, if they're able to figure out a way for them to be able to, uh, to live and work inside Mexico while they wait for the opportunity to go inside the United States to make their asylum claim, I think that would be far more dignified for the asylum seekers because otherwise, you know, there's waits of uh, an hour, two hours, just for a, a plate of rice and beans right now, right? That doesn't seem like the kind of situation we want to have happening on the border right now. And then the other, t- at the end, the other kind of point of view, even in the last month or so, uh, there's been at least 11,000 people deported Central Americans deported from Mexico back to Central America. So the other uh, policy change that one would like to see from this administration, I think, would be uh, a dropping that enforcement, that heavy enforcement that we're seeing. So instead of, uh, you know, so many deportations, because we know that's the other kind of policy in the United States is basically, uh, in a way, shifting their border down further south to Mexico, Guatemala, so stopping migrants from ever even coming close to the U.S. border, right? And so that would be a positive step forward if we could see a, a, a reduction in using enforcement and deportation as a means of stopping uh, people from migrating. Okay, finally, um, Jose, do you have any uh, advice or, or recommendations for listeners who, who wish to try to uh, ameliorate the situation uh, for the migrants? Um, migration is generally caused because of people feeling like they they don't have any other options in their, their countries, their home countries, their countries of origin. That, and that's essentially a political consideration, right? Like the, the poverty in Central America is the way it is. I think in many ways because of foreign policy by the United States and Canada that have, for example, to, you know, to speak to Canada, Canada was one of the major forces that helped uh, consolidate the coup d'etat in Honduras. There were negotiations between Canadian officials and the interim government and then the, the, the following, you know, government in Honduras trying to facilitate it because, as we know, in Canada, there are a lot of mining companies that are headquartered, mining companies that have interests throughout Central America and Honduras in particular. And so you see Canada as, uh, you know, in its diplomatic means actually undermining the possibility of, you know, economic improvements in countries like Honduras, which then, you know, further pr- provokes more migration and exodus of people. So I, I would always say that the number one thing is to to challenge the, 
the foreign policy of the, your country, you know, in this case Canada, uh, but also the United States, and to pressure representatives, you know, in Canada, your MPs, to pursue a more humanitarian policy in Central America. Just to add a little point, right, like uh, one of the things that the Lopez Obrador administration has talked about, really put the emphasis on, which I think is, is a correct course of action, is attending to the root causes of migration, right, making it so people who do choose to migrate are really doing it because they want to, uh, but otherwise, you know, people have should have the, the economic reality so that they can stay in their countries where, where their families are, where their culture is. You know, I myself uh, emigrated from Mexico with my family to North America when I was very young, and it's a, it's a difficult process, right? Immigration can be a beautiful thing and it can really enrich countries, but it's also it's difficult for migrants themselves to come to a new country. So, they, you know, if they don't have to, if they feel like they have uh, prosperity at home, then then I think that's everybody everybody wins in that circumstance. Jose, thank you so much for your time, and thanks for sharing your insights with our listeners. Oh, thank you very much for having me. We've been speaking with Mexico City-based independent journalist Jose Luis Granados Ceja. As this program first goes to air on Friday, November 30th, it has been three weeks since thousands of migrants arrived in Tijuana City, waiting for their chance to cross the border into the U.S. and plead their case for asylum. According to Reuters, the migrants have been sleeping outdoors, on cold floors, or on mats in an overcrowded shelter. The sports complex currently housing the migrants accommodates only 2,000 people, although representatives of the Mexican Human Rights Commission claim a much bigger facility has opened up, which should relieve the migrants from having to live and sleep in the open. City officials speaking to Reuters claim that rain, Cooler temperatures and overcrowding have contributed to an outbreak of illness among the cluster of Central American refugees. These include flu-like sicknesses, lice, and chickenpox. Under the Trump administration's immigration policy, border officials are saying the migrants may have to stay in Mexico for months before they have a chance to petition the authorities. Under the safe third country agreement between Canada and the United States, refugee claimants are required to request refugee protection in the first safe countries they arrive in. Canada considers the U.S. to be a safe third country, noting that, among other factors, quote, the United States meets a high standard with respect to the protection of human rights. It is an open democracy with independent courts, separation of powers, and constitutional guarantees of essential human rights and fundamental freedoms, unquote. Migrant justice organizers in Canada have been encouraging the public to contact their member of parliament and demand the immigration minister, Ahmed Hussein, open Canadian borders to the migrants and refugees in the caravan and repeal the safe third country agreement between Canada and the United States. Interested listeners may also consider signing an online petition available at the site change.org under the heading Canada Grant Asylum to the Migrant Caravan. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week. 